Our text this morning is from the book of Revelation. Revelation is known as one of the strangest books in the Bible, and of course that's not without reason. It's full of strange, vivid symbolism that can be really notoriously hard to interpret. And uh, just to set your minds at ease, I'm certainly not able to interpret every detail in this passage, so um, don't expect that. But just like the rest of the Bible, Revelation is given to us by God to teach us and equip us for the life of faith. And the book of Revelation does that by giving us a vision of Jesus, of the world, and of ourselves from a wonderfully weird and unexpected perspective. A perspective that helps us see things we wouldn't otherwise see. And I think this morning we'll see things about Jesus and about ourselves. So without further ado, let's dive into this strange and exciting vision in chapter 12. Right away in verses 1 and 2, we meet a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pain, and the agony of giving birth. Who is this woman? Especially in the Christmas season, it's natural enough for us to think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But instead, I think this woman should remind us of the woman we met last Sunday in Micah chapters 4 and 5. The daughter of Zion, who represents the whole people of God. Including, of course, but not limited to, Mary. And we saw last week in Micah that daughter Zion was in labor until she could give birth to the promised ruler, Jesus. So, here's that same scene again. She has a crown of 12 stars, 12 being, of course, the number of the tribes of Israel. Or, should 12 make us think of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples of Jesus, sent out to carry the gospel into the whole world? Which is it? Well, in fact, this is a bit of a trick question. I think both of those associations, 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles of the church, belong together. We don't need to pick between identifying this woman as Israel or identifying her as the church because there is and has only ever been one people of God. In our Anglican tradition every week, in the prayer after communion, we hear this wonderful sentence. We are incorporated into the mystical body of your son, the blessed company of all faithful people. All faithful people means all people who have faith in God's Son in every time and place. That includes the Israelite who in the Old Testament period looked forward with faith to the coming of God's Son, and it includes the Christian who in the New Testament period has faith in the good news that the Son has come. All faithful people are incorporated into the one mystical body of that Son, into one blessed company. So this woman can represent both daughter Zion of Micah's day and the church of our day. She represents one and the same people of God, only known by two different names in two different periods of her history. And this passage tells us something about both periods of that history. Here in this very first scene, we see the people of God still in labor, still waiting for Jesus' first coming. But in the rest of this passage, we'll see the history of the people of God after Jesus' first coming. That is the history of the Christian church, our history, the history we're living through right now. Mm 
To understand that history, we need to meet the other characters in this passage. So here's the second character in verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. Who is this dragon? Verse 9 tells us that he is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Let me tell you something about Satan. In some other religions, God and Satan are imagined as two equal and opposite forces, locked in an eternal struggle over the fate of the world. But the truth is that Satan is not God's opposite or God's rival. He's just one of God's many creatures, who, though created by God for some good purpose, turned against his creator and chose his own wicked purpose. And though Satan has chosen to rebel against God, his creator, he remains a mere creature. All of God's creatures, whether they're good or wicked, depend on God for their existence, for their sustenance, for all their power. So none of God's creatures, no matter how rebellious, can ever be anything like a match for God. A fight between Satan and God would be like a fight between, say, a lizard and God. It doesn't even make sense to talk about a fight. The lizard loses automatically. There's no contest. There's no cosmic struggle. Compared to Almighty God, Satan is infinitely weak. Satan is so weak that it would be tempting for me to stand here and trash talk him all morning. The problem is that as weak as Satan is, I am even weaker. Compared to God, Satan is even less than a little lizard. He can cause God no trouble at all. But compared to me, he's a terrifying and threatening dragon. He can cause me quite a lot of trouble. Since Satan so obviously can't do anything to hurt God, instead he has turned against the creature God most loves, against humankind. You all know the story of that ancient serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. Satan damaged humankind terribly by deceiving us about God so that we joined him in sinful rebellion. And here in the first scene of this passage, he's trying to hurt us again, even more cruelly. In verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Satan is going to try and devour the one sent to save us from sin. He's going to try and make the woman's long labor pains pointless by swallowing up her child as soon as he appears. Will he succeed? No, of course not. The third character in this passage appears in verse 5. The woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The male child is, of course, Jesus. And in the vision of Revelation 12, we see all of Jesus' earthly life rolled up into one short sentence. He was born, and then immediately he was caught up to God and to his throne. Of course, we know that Jesus did a whole lot of extremely important stuff in between his birth and his ascension into heaven. Like, say, dying for our sins on the cross and rising again to new life, you know. 
pretty important details to just skip over, right? Well, don't worry, of course, the book of Revelation knows all about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And it testifies to these in countless profound ways. It testifies that they're at the center of his earthly ministry. For example, in the vision of Revelation chapter 5, where we see Jesus as the lamb who was slain, who ransomed a people for God by his blood. We see that same emphasis on the lamb and on his saving blood throughout the book of Revelation and indeed later on in this very passage. So the point of the super short summary of Jesus' life in chapter 12, verse 5, is not at all to skip over the crucifixion and the resurrection. Rather, verse 5 mentions only Jesus' birth and his ascension, the beginning and the end of his life on earth, because it wants to present the whole of the Son's earthly work as a single event. A single event in which the Son came into the world, did what he had been sent to do, and returned triumphant to his Father's side. All the many details of Jesus' life, and all the many things he did to bless us and save us, with his crucifixion and resurrection at the center, are a single event, in the sense that they all together bring an end to Daughter Zion's labor pain. Last week we saw Micah compare the people of God to a woman in labor as they waited for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. But Jesus used that woman in labor metaphor too in John chapter 16, verses 21 to 22. Speaking to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus said, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, her joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. The way Jesus uses the metaphor, the labor pains don't quite end with his birth. He's obviously already born when he's saying this but with his resurrection and ascension. The disciples will have sorrow, like labor pains, when Jesus is taken away from them and killed. But they will have lasting joy, like the joy of a new mother, when they see Jesus again after his resurrection. And when Jesus, having finished the work he was born to do, ascends to the Father's side. So really, it's not just Jesus' birth by itself, that brings an end to the labor pains of the people of God. It's Jesus' birth plus the whole saving work he was born to do that brings an end to the labor pains. So that's how we see it represented here in verse 5. What comes at the end of the woman's labor pains is not only the birth of her child, but the completion of his whole saving work, represented by his triumphant ascension to heaven and to his throne. And verse 5's lightning-quick summary of Jesus' ministry serves another purpose, to emphasize how totally the dragon fails to devour the child. As soon as the Son of God comes into the world to save humanity, it's already all over for Satan. Next thing he knows, the same son who was born a vulnerable baby in Bethlehem, who was subject to death on the cross, has risen to new life and is enthroned in heaven with God. Even with seven heads and seven sets of snapping teeth, the dragon is just too slow. He opens his mouth to devour the child, but by the time his jaws close, the child has already carried out his whole plan to triumph over Satan forever. 
The dragon's failure is almost cartoonish, like Wiley e. Coyote chasing Roadrunner or Sylvester the cat trying to catch Tweety Bird. Satan just can't keep up with Jesus. In verse 6, we read that after this, the woman escapes to the wilderness. We'll catch up with her again in verse 13. So for now, let's move on to verses 7 and 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown with him. So here we've met a fourth character, the archangel Michael. The first thing to say about angels is that, as we read a few months ago in Hebrews 1.14, they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, they're spiritual creatures who are sent out to serve and to help us. Most angels in the Bible are anonymous. We don't know their names or anything about them, except that God sends them to help us in various special ways. But Michael is one of only two angels who is named in the Bible. The other being, of course, Gabriel, the angel who brought news to Mary that she would bear Jesus. And actually, both Gabriel and Michael make their first appearances in Scripture way back in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapters 10 and 12, the angel Michael is called the great prince who has charge of your people. He's something like a guardian angel for the whole people of God for Israel in Daniel's day, and for the church in ours. He's the chief angel, or archangel, leading the whole army of angels in service of those who are to inherit salvation. So it makes sense that we find him here fighting with Satan, the great enemy of those who are to inherit salvation. And it's very, very important for us to see that the victory of Michael and his angels over the dragon and his angels is one not because Michael is in himself stronger than Satan. He may or may not be. I have no opinion on that question. Rather, Michael and his angels are victorious over Satan because Christ, their master, is victorious over Satan first. In John chapter 12, verse 31, speaking of his coming crucifixion, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When Jesus speaks of casting out the ruler of this world, he's speaking about Satan, who by deceiving the whole world became its illegitimate ruler. That's why in Revelation 12 he wears ten diadems or crowns on his head, a symbol of his pretension to authority. But by defeating sin and death on the cross, Jesus judges and casts out Satan. After his resurrection, he ascends into heaven where he is enthroned as the true ruler of the world. And it's because of this victory, the victory that Christ won over Satan, that Michael and his angels can win their victory. To see this again, we can look at the only other place other than Daniel and Revelation that Michael is mentioned in the Bible. 
in the tiny New Testament letter of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. Jude tells us this story about Michael and Satan fighting over the body of Moses when Moses died. So here's Jude, verse 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael didn't presume to judge Satan himself. Instead, he fought against Satan by repeating the Lord's judgment of Satan. Michael is able to defend Moses' body, to defend the Jews in Daniel's day, and to defend heaven in this chapter, not because of his own strength, but because of the strong victory of Christ. And this is a very good lesson to us. When we feel that Satan is tempting us, or if we feel scared or disturbed by something that might be a demon, the only weapon, but it's the only one we need, that we have against Satan and his angels is the work of Jesus Christ, his victory and his judgment against all the spiritual forces of evil. So we can also say to Satan when he bothers us, the Lord Jesus rebuke you. If you were a Hollywood producer making a movie about the war in heaven, I think you would want lots of action shots of angels and demons beating each other up, each one using its signature superpower. And you would give the good guys a major setback in the second act to build the tension about who's going to win. Maybe you would even stretch the story out over three or four movies with advances and reversal, <laughs> plot twists. But the true story, the true story of the war in heaven can be told in just a few words. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Obviously, because Christ is strong and Satan is weak, and Michael is fighting in the strength of Christ. It's God versus a lizard. After Satan and his angels are thrown down to earth, a loud voice in heaven makes an amazing announcement, beginning in verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. We read already that Satan is the deceiver. Now we hear that he is the accuser. Before being thrown out of heaven, Satan used to hang around up there, accusing the people of God day and night. You may know that there's a scene like this in Job chapter 1 where Satan appears before God in heaven to accuse Job. There's a lesser known, but I think even more relevant scene in Zechariah chapter 3, where Satan accuses Joshua, who was the high priest in Zechariah's day. So let me read Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Then God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Just like in Jude verse 9. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. 
And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. So, of course, Zechariah 3 deserves its own sermon, at least one. Without being able to talk about all the details of that fascinating passage, here's the basic point. Joshua the high priest was filthy before God because of his sin. Satan had lots of real accusations to make against him. But the Lord defends Joshua from Satan's accusations. How? By removing his filthy garments and clothing him in pure garments. Like you and me, Joshua is a sinner, and Satan wants Joshua to burn for it. But God saves him, like a stick plucked out of the fire just in time so that it doesn't burn. This is what Jesus has done for all of God's people, past, present, and future. Plucked us out of the fire and clothed us in pure garments, the pure garments of his own righteousness. This is why the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, kicked out of heaven for good. He can no longer accuse God's people because in Christ, God's people are no longer filthy before him. As Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 puts it, God's people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Or as Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 puts it, they have conquered their accuser by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Not only Michael and his angels, but also all human people of faith who endure to the end have a guaranteed victory against Satan. We are too weak to fight against Satan, but Christ is strong and has fought for us. We are too guilty to withstand Satan's accusations, but Christ is sinless and holy, and God mercifully clothes us with his righteousness. And as we reach the end of the heavenly announcement in verse 12, there's both lasting joy over the heavenly victory that Christ has won, but also trembling over what will come next. Because of the work of Christ, Satan has been cast down to earth. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Precisely because the devil's fate is sealed and his doom is sure, his wrath has become great. He is really ticked off at Jesus for saving us. Having failed to devour the woman's child or to hold on to his place in heaven, the dragon now turns in verses 13 to 16 against the woman herself, the people of God. And so life on earth actually gets harder for us in a sense. The people of God no longer suffer the pains of labor, but for a short time, the rest of history until Christ's return, we suffer the wrath of the dragon. Twice the dragon tries to get the woman, and twice he fails completely. First in verse 13 he pursues her, but in verse 14 God lifts her up on eagle's wings, and she flies away safely to the wilderness that God had prepared for her, the place she was already heading back in verse 6. 
the woman has to live in the wilderness for 1260 days. Why 1260 days? I don't know. What I do know is that that's the same length of time that's mentioned in chapter 11 and chapter 13. According to chapter 11, verse 3, the prophets of God will bear witness to him, they will testify to him for 1260 days. And according to chapter 13, verse 5, the dragon's servants will exercise authority in the world for 1260 days. I think each of these mentions of 1260 days describes the same period of time, the time in which we now live, the whole period of history between Jesus' ascension and his return. In this last period of world history, the church testifies to Jesus in the midst of a world ruled by the enemies of Jesus. So the people of God are in the wilderness, because in a world ruled by our enemies, we don't yet have any city of our own where we can settle down for good. The time of eternal rest, when we will be with our Lord in the new and holy Zion forever, is still ahead of us. But at the same time, God has prepared the wilderness for us so that we will find nourishment there. When we study scripture, when we remember Jesus at the communion table, when we support and bless each other in Christian friendships, each of these is a way that God nourishes us in the wilderness, that he strengthens us and reminds us of our lasting joy that no one can take away. And so nourished by God, we can continue to testify to Jesus joyfully even in the wilderness, even in the presence of our enemies and under the wrath of the dragon. Now the dragon makes his second attempt against the woman in verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But, verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. It turns out that the earth itself is on the woman's side, on our side, people of God. During the period of 1260 days, the church will testify to Jesus, and the dragon's false prophets will testify to the dragon. And humanity will have to decide which of these two messages to believe. Each person will have to make that choice. But the non-human world, represented here by the earth, already knows which message is true. It's God's truth, not Satan's lies, that line up with and make sense of the natural world. Nature's own testimony to the goodness of her creator vindicates the church and swallows up the river of lies that is always pouring out of Satan's mouth. So the dragon fails either to catch the woman or to drown her. Satan can't destroy the people of God. We're safe, not because we're strong enough to protect ourselves, but because God protects the people he has plucked out of the fire. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Finally, in the last verse of our passage, having failed to devour the child, 
and having failed to hold on to his place in heaven, and having twice failed to defeat the people of God, the dragon turns to his final target. In verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. You and I, you and I, if we keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus, are sons and daughters of the woman pictured here. We are sons and daughters of the church, the people of God, with Jesus, the male child of verse 5, as our elder brother. And you and I, if we keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus, are Satan's new and final targets in his last and most furious war. He can never destroy the church as a whole, but he thinks he may yet be able to conquer us as individuals. If the people of God as a whole are safe, how can Satan ever to hope, hope to conquer individual members of that people? Here's the answer. Satan can only conquer you if you leave the people of God, if you leave the company of faith. Satan will make war on you as long as you hold on to the testimony of Jesus, but Satan can only conquer you if you stop holding on to the testimony of Jesus. That's what Satan is desperately hoping you will do. And he can't make you do it. He can't make you leave the faith. He can't make you let go of Jesus. There are only two things Satan can do to try and get you to abandon the testimony of Jesus. He can threaten and he can deceive. If you read on into chapter 13, this is exactly what you'll see the dragon and the beasts who work for him doing. They threaten God's people with violence to try and scare them into turning away from God. And they tell lies about God and about themselves to try and trick God's people into thinking the dragon and his beasts are more important than God. These are Satan's only weapons in his war against the saints. All he can do is try to scare us and try to deceive us. But faith can resist both of these weapons. By faith, we remember that no matter how many heads and horns and crowns the big scary dragon has, he can't actually stop God's plans. By faith, we remember that Satan couldn't stop Jesus from coming into the world or returning to his father victorious. That Satan couldn't stop Jesus from giving us his own righteousness as a defense against our accuser. That he couldn't stop Jesus from calling a holy people for himself and from protecting and nourishing them in the wilderness. By faith, we remember that the big dragon is no more a threat to God and his plans than a little lizard would be. This doesn't mean that if we have faith, we will never be afraid. When the dragon and his beasts threaten the people of God with violence, we may well be afraid. But when we are afraid, by faith, we can turn to Jesus for sure protection. For protection that can keep us safe, even if the dragon's servants do kill us. Trusting in the resurrected one and his promise of eternal life takes the sting out of even the dragon's worst threats. 
And when Satan tries to deceive us by telling us lies about God, or by acting like there's something in the world that is more important than God, by faith we see past that deception. By faith we look to Jesus to remember who God really is and to remember what is really important. By faith we see Jesus enthroned in heaven, the loving Lamb of God who was slain for us and who now reigns forever. And we receive a testimony that is so much more compelling than any of Satan's lies. And so no matter how furiously Satan makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, the victory announcement of verse 11 stands. The brothers and sisters of Christ, the people of God, have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Every one of us who holds on to Jesus till the end will share in his victory. In the words of chapter 13, verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If we let go of Jesus and turn away from God, then Satan may yet conquer us. He may yet get one measly little win before he's finally thrown into the lake of fire forever. In chapter 20. But if we endure, if we hold on to the testimony of Jesus, even in the face of Satan's threats and lies, then we will conquer him through Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Amen.